But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, verse 43 and 44. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want to list some dates from world history, years. Uh, see if you can piece together what these years have in common. 67, 100, 410, 970, 1340, 1870, 1890, 1920, 1988, 1999, and 2014. Any history buffs have any sense? Well, guess what those might be? Yeah. Predictions at the end of the world, times when there was some quarter of Christians who were saying, the world is just about to end right now, we know it. Which is another way of saying, um, it was a moment when people had forgotten Matthew 24, when Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Of course their predictions were wrong, we're still waiting for the second coming. And the way in which we're to be ready for it is likened by Jesus to a householder bracing for a thief who might come in the night. And that's where I want to spend um, the majority of our time this morning is just unpacking that figure of a man uh, defending his house. Um, but before doing that, I feel that there's a sort of necessity to do a bit of groundwork because there's so many misconceptions kind of floating around out there about the end times. And it's understandable because the biblical visions are difficult to put together. We've got all these really intense visions of Revelation. We have these prophecies in First and Second Thessalonians. Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 24. How do we stitch it all together? Um, the, uh, the famous Left Behind series, did a lot of you read the Left Behind series? No, not, not many? Well, oh, some did. Okay. Well, whether you read it or not, it's definitely woven its way into our sort of general understanding of the end times. But all the ideas of that book were invented in the 1840s by a man named Darby, who meant well but it's certain that he um, put the biblical data together in a new and different way than it had been traditionally put together by the church for long centuries uh, of wisdom, trying to understand what the Lord did indeed prophesy. And I know this is a little controversial, but what I want to offer is that all of the things that are usually meant by the word rapture, um, millennium, tribulation, um, don't exist in the way they're usually put forward as existing. Uh, and so I want to offer you, and for your consideration, as St. Paul says, let each be convinced in his own mind. I just want to offer what, with all my heart, I believe to be the best gathering of all the biblical data, certainly the way that the bulk of church tradition in, in its wisdom um, tried to, to hold these things together, of what the end times will look like. Um, to be clear, I think there's no rapture of Christians, which then leaves non-Christians on the earth for some period of time. Um, there's no thousand years of some sort of rain would then something to come after or before that. This is, I think, the biblical story. So the millennium is the epoch in which Christ re reigns as Lord, and yet his reign isn't fully established. In other words, that's the era that we live in now. It, the millennium began when Jesus was raised from the dead in power. It's not a literal thousand years in the same way later on in Matthew 24, Jesus says, all these things will happen, this generation will not pass away, before all these things happen, it's not a literal this generation, right? because here we still are, um, beyond 50 years from when Jesus made the prophecy. The thousand years isn't literal. Wickedness, 
uh, and pain continue in this mortal life and in, in ebbs and flows as we see through church history, the Bible does prophesy that right before the end it will be worse than it's ever been. That's true. Um, which means, I mean, we only have to look back to a few things to, to see that it is going to be terrible. I mean, the Black Plague killed a third of Europe, and yet the plagues of the end times will be worse than that. Um, the Soviet gulags killed 60 million, and yet oppressive governments in the end times will be worse than that. Christians will not be spared. Actually, we'll, we'll be chief among the victims uh, in, the, in the last days. The Bible prophesies that there will be a false teacher who's takes place in the church who will lead many Christians away. It won't be obvious or glaringly suspicious teaching. Many Christians will be tempted by it. The Bible also prophesies that Elijah himself will return from heaven. Don't ask me how that works, but so many of the Christian mysteries that way. How did the Son of God take on flesh? It's a confession of faith. Elijah will come back and his preaching will lead to the conversion of many of the Jewish people. And on the last day, Jesus says, um, previously here in Matthew 24, that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And all the church fathers thought that would mean a bright white cross in the sky the moment before Jesus comes back. So what, why that will be there, I don't know, but that's how it's traditionally been interpreted. And then in that moment, Jesus will come back, and all human souls and all angels will be gathered together in one moment. St. Peter says the whole cosmos will be rolled up as a scroll. I mean, the entire known universe will come together at the foot of Jesus Christ in a moment, and he will judge the living and the dead. And those who are his, who are found to be in him, to have faith in him, will be gathered to him to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. And those who are not found in him, who do not have faith in him, will not inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, and will in fact be put away for eternity. That is the traditional vision of how we hold together all these prophecies in Matthew 24, and they really come to the fore in our readings in Advent. And because Advent is this wonderful double-themed season where we're looking at ahead to the second coming, even as we're preparing to celebrate the first coming at Christmas, and sort of the comparison and the contrast of the comings of Christ. I love that Wesley hymn that we began with, um, sort of that lo, he comes with clouds descending, um, that vision of looking ahead for his coming. Um, it's understandable that in many different junctures people have thought the end time was right then because it was at an upsurge of misery and natural disaster and calamity. Um, but in fact, 2,000 years have passed since Jesus made these prophecies. And even in Peter's day, they thought, wow, man, the Lord is really taking his time and coming back. And that's why Peter reminds us that to God, a thousand years is like a day. So really, God has only been waiting for two days um, to fulfill these prophecies. Um, and he might come back today or tomorrow on that time frame. One thing is certain that the day is nearer now than when we first believed. That's the refrain of the New Testament. And the nearness of the day, the fact that it's, we're one day closer to that day when the cosmos all comes together at the foot of Christ, um, we're told it should rightly elicit a response from us, readiness, all the words from the gospel we heard today, watchfulness, the command to stay awake. These are phrases that characterize sort of the spirit we're seeking to cultivate in Advent. This a watchfulness, a readiness, uh, being on guard. Not because we only need them in Advent. Our Lord is uh, 
imploring us to cultivate them always. But one of the ways in which the church here works is we take a special window to emphasize one particular aspect of discipleship, and, and that's the theme for Advent, watchfulness. And Jesus says, um, he gives us this word picture, as he often does, to help us understand these big cosmic concepts. He describes a householder who gets broken into. So I want you to, this is what I want you to try and imagine with me for a second. Um, imagine you got a really weird note in your mailbox. No, no return address, just this note that says, um, I'm going to break into your house tonight, sometime before sunrise. If you're like me, first thing you do, you call the police, right? And, but let's say they didn't take you seriously. Let's say, oh, that's probably just some prank, some kid. You're on your own, and you know, let's pretend it's some kind of terrible movie scenario. And for some reason, you can't leave your house. You're stuck there, because obviously, I would then just get out of Dodge and let them take the stuff. Um, <laughs> but for some reason, you're stuck in the house. That's the picture Jesus imagines. What would you do that night, having gotten that note? Right? You'd camp out. You'd, you'd lock all your windows. You'd sit in a chair where you could see both of your doors. Um, depending on how you sort of defend your family, you'd either have a little baseball bat, which I don't know what that's going to do, but that's what I got. Um, or many of you I know will have a gun to stand your ground, and you're going to be up all night, right? Would you sleep that night? No. Right? Would you go on a Netflix binge that night? No. Would you throw back a few beers and call some buddies? No. Right? You'd be watchful. And so Jesus gives us this picture. That's the kind of spirit with which we should be anticipating the coming of Jesus. Um, You'd be on maximum alert uh, all night, watching that doorknob, even for the, the slightest turn. Stay awake. You'd stay awake. Um, as well as sort of the, the feeling that that evokes, that sort of readiness, that watchfulness, that preparedness, um, why does Jesus use this particular image? He could have used any image to conjure a feeling like that. Why this image of a thief and breaking in? It's a little bit jarring. Um, what's its significance? I want to offer actually two interpretations, and you can decide which you think is better, because I think both are tenable. Um, the first, and this is where the majority of the church fathers land, is knowing from John chapter 10 that Satan is called the thief, right? The thief who comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Um, the thief could be a figure for Satan, in which case the house would be a figure for our bodies, the homes that we live in, um, and the householder being our soul in participation with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they use the figure of, that we need to guard our windows, and the doors to the home. And I think it's a very poetic picture, right? The portals that come into his house, that, that whether to stay far away from lustful eyes or love of the things of this world or, or a gossipy mouth or itching ears, that those are the things the enemy would use to try and rob us of our hearts, right? And rob us of our relationship with God. Um, I think that's a good interpretation. Um, but I think... There actually might be a better one, which are, and it's tenuous ground, because usually when the church fathers say something, 99% of the time they're right. Um, there is one church father who, who thought otherwise too, and it's this. Um, in Revelation chapter 16, you might remember, Jesus actually says to John, he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. I'm coming like a thief. Which then might cast another angle on this image of a house and a thief. And it's sort of jarring, but Jesus does do this sometimes, right? He compares himself to something that's wicked to highlight the contrast, right? He says, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the good God give you good gifts, right? When he tells the parable of the unjust um, judge that we heard just a few weeks ago, if a wicked judge would eventually give in to the cries of a widow, how much more would the good judge give in to the cries of the widow, right? Jesus makes that contrast. 
So I, I, I think that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 24, that if you'd stay up all night with vigilance to guard your stuff from getting stolen, how much more should you be vigilant to guard your soul, right? If we'd be that protective of our stuff, how much more would we, should we be watchful over our own soul? Not just for the coming of a thief, but for the coming of the king. If you'd lock all your windows to guard against a thief, how much more should you fix your windows on Jesus Christ? Right? Watchfulness. If you'd be prepared with a weapon to meet a thief, how much more, in the words of that collect, should we be found in the armor of light? That wonderful list from Ephesians chapter 6. The shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, bracing, right, for a conflict. If you'd be watchful of the door in the thief scenario, um, how much more should we be watchful that our souls remain untainted from the world? James chapter 1. What I really love about this image, like all of Jesus' images is that are so comprehensive, is that, imagine, go back to like the real world scenario where you're stuck in your house and you know that a thief is going to come. You'd still take a bathroom break, you'd still get a snack, you'd have to, right? But you'd keep one eye on the door the whole time. That we still are called to live normal lives, right? We're still, we still celebrate birthdays and Christmas and watch super exciting football games. Um, sorry, Lewix. Um, <laughs> Um, but you would do so with one eye on the door, metaphorically. Do you see, do you see that, that idea? And that's something which we see over and over through all the great Christians of the past, is that even in the midst of enjoyment of regular life, there's always one eye on the door. There's always one eye sort of watching. It, the Lord could come back, and I need to be ready. That I'll enjoy this. But in the same way, on a, if you're on that image with the thief, you wouldn't drink too much. You wouldn't sort of spend your life in dissipation, because you've got to be at least a bit watchful. Same thing with the Christian life, even with the feasting of Thanksgiving and Christmas. The Christian feasting keeps one eye on the door. I love this figure. We must be ready. Um, many uh, early church teachers refer to baptism as the spiritual awakening, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Having been wakened up by the Holy Spirit through baptism, the charge is to stay awake. And so if there's one phrase that I hope you have rattling in your ears all Advent, Stay awake. Stay vigilant. Um, I actually, if you want a little written reminder, I've got these little postcards you could just put as a bookmark in your Bible or on your fridge or something about sort of Advent practices to try and cultivate watchfulness uh, through, through the season. We need to stay awake because the Son of Man is coming at an hour we do not expect. Amen. <laughs>